So today we are going to get a chance to dig into God's word together and we are continuing our study of 2 Samuel. Is there any more lights we could uh, bring up here because people start getting drowsy when it's this warm and, and dim? Uh, might turn some floodlights going this way, get you, get you woken up a little bit. So we've been going through studying the life of David. David, who scripture calls a man after God's own heart. We saw uh, several weeks ago that he's not without flaws. David uh, sinned in, in major ways that affected his life and his family. And yet, still at the end of the story, he's called a man after God's own heart. So as we look at this story of David now in his interaction with his own son Absalom and the rebellion and the, the uh, undermining and the subversion that's a part of Absalom's plot, we're going to see in David's response and in David's actions some more clues of what does it look like to have a heart after God. And so the chapters we're going to take a look at today are chapters 17 and 18. It's the continuing story of David and Absalom. There's a lot of names in here. There's a lot of places. These are not names that are common here in, in North America in the 21st century. And so I'll try to help us uh, pick apart this story and find out exactly what's taking place here. Because none of this is just incidental. It's not just history that we kind of read, go in one ear, one, one, in one ear and out the other. This is God's word speaking to us. So let's come with that kind of expectation today to God's word and say, God, why did you put this in your word? Why did you give this message to us today? What are we to know, to believe? How are we to change? How should we be different in light of your revelation of yourself and your kingdom and your plan? So I pray that we can come with that spirit of humility to God's word together today as we read these stories here in 2 Samuel chapter 17. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, now who's Ahithophel? If you weren't here last Sunday, you need a little background information there. There are two advisors that are going to be introduced here in chapter 17. One is Ahithophel. He has been known as giving good advice. In fact, it said at the very end of chapter 16, his advice was as if he spoke with the word of God. There's a little bit of a caution there, right? Because you actually want somebody to speak with the word of God, not just seem like they almost speak with the word of God, as is said of Ahithophel. But both David and Absalom and all of Israel recognize if you need some advice about something, go talk to Ahithophel. So there's a challenge now because Absalom has set himself up as king. He's now in Jerusalem. His dad, David, is on the run. He's living in the wilderness, a place that he's not unfamiliar with. He's with a band of loyal followers once again, just as he was early in his uh, time as the anointed king of Israel before he had actually taken the throne from Saul. And so that's the story that is unfolding. And David knows that his son Absalom, the usurper, who's trying to seize the throne, trying to kill his dad, because that's how you become a king, right? You've got to get rid of the old king. David knows that Ahithophel is the advisor and he gives good advice. And so he sends his friend, Hushai, to go and confuse matters. He says, Hushai, can you go and distort the advice that Ahithophel gives to Absalom? That's a little bit of background. So Ahithophel gives his advice now. Let me, Absalom, let me, Ahithophel the advisor, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he was weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and the people will be at peace. 
and the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So look at the advice that Ahithophel gives because this is the first advisor we're going to meet here in chapter 17. He's proposing a tactical strike force of 12,000 men with himself as the commander leading the way. A little unusual because there is a commander of Israel's armies named Joab. Problem is he's been loyal to David up to this point and he's out in the wilderness. So uh, Ahithophel maybe is seeing a, a promotion opportunity here, you know? There's going to need to be a new commander of the armies of Israel. I'll insert myself as the leader of this tactical strike force of 12,000 men. And the plan, the process here is we will A, kill David, and B, unite all of Israel. Pretty simple strategy. He uses some very vivid imagery that you can kind of picture, right? Like a bride coming to her husband. The bride in the story being all of Israel and the husband being Absalom, the hero, the new king, right? So it's going to be like a, this sweet romantic wedding day as all of Israel is united to the new king, Absalom. And that's the picture that he paints for Absalom. And notice uh, the response of Absalom and all the elders, all the leadership. There they're going... That sounds like a good plan, good strategy. It's simple, it's tactical, there's not a lot of collateral damage, and we can do it today. Ahithophel says, send me today, I'll get that team together, we'll go hunt him down, we'll kill just that one guy that's standing in the way of the throne. Okay? So now here, let's see what the, the other advice is. Now, we're going to actually see first as Hushai comes in, he doesn't begin with advice. He begins with what you may have heard in business as referred to as FUD. Anybody hear that acronym before? F dot U dot D. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Okay, so that's, that's kind of Hushai's strategy. Let's start with some FUD, and that will pave the way for me to give my advice. Once I get everybody all worked up, and anxious and confused, then I can go for the kill and give them my agenda and my plan. So Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also and let's hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken, shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time, the counsel of Ahithophel is not good. Hushai said, now pa pause for one second, when you're reading something in Hebrew, there's a way that Hebrew narrative unfolds and it keeps moving forward. They keep putting the word and at the beginning of every sentence. If you've studied Hebrew, they call that the vav consecutive. So, and this happened, and that happened, and this next thing happened. And what you would expect in a normal Hebrew narrative when one person says something is that the other person would say something in response. So there's something subtle in the omission of any response from Absalom because twice we hear, and Hushai said. So picture, you know, really to get yourself into the scenario, Absalom asks a question to Hushai. Hushai answers. There's an awkward pause there's some facial expressions that we don't have recorded. There's something that causes Hushai to say again before Absalom gives any response to his first pretty extreme statement. This time, the advice of this trusted advisor, Ahithophel, is not good. There is a careful 
structuring of those words that Hushai uses. He's not saying Ahithophel is an idiot. Don't ever listen to anything he says. No, everyone in Israel knows that he gives good advice. So very carefully, he, he gently and delicately says, just this one time, the advice of Ahithophel is not to be trusted. No response from Absalom, awkward pause. And then he continues on. You know that your father and his men are mighty men and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people, your people, Absalom, as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt in fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and that those who are with him are valiant men. This is the FUD portion of Hushai's speech. He's, he's spreading fear, uncertainty, doubt. And you know, when, if, you, if you're worried about whether you're getting good advice or bad advice, I'll tell you what, bad advice always starts with some fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And good advice always starts with, let's pray about this together. Let's seek the Lord's will together. There might be still some bad news to come after that time of prayer and seeking God, but that's the difference between bad advice, walking into a trap, and good advice. Bad advice is all centered around anxiety, fear, doubt. Good advice starts with, let's trust God together. And so Hushai is intentionally bringing some bad advice to Absalom because his plans have been bad and evil since the beginning. Again, he's using vivid imagery, going even beyond what Ahithophel did, painting pictures of this ever-vigilant David who doesn't even sleep. He's still in the prowess of his youth. He's a mighty man. He's a warrior. There's valiant men with him. Not only that, they're mad. They're enraged. Can you picture a mad mama bear separated from her cubs. That's what you're walking into, Absalom. Don't listen to what Ahithophel said because what's going to happen is you're going to be defeated today if you hastily pursue David and word's going to get out and all of a sudden public opinion is going to sway and, there, and the rumor is going to get out that Absalom has been defeated. You can't go down that path. This time Ahithophel's advice is not good. And so now Hushai gets to the point where he's kind of got the interest of Absalom and the other elders of Israel. He's got them a little worried. There's some anxiety. There's some apprehension. There's some fear. There's some uncertainty about proceeding down that path that they had first chosen and decided upon. And now the table is set for him to lay out his own advice. So let's continue on here. Verse 11. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand of the sea for multitude and that you go to battle in person. See where he's going here. So we shall come upon him, David, in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground. 
it's not a gentle, peaceful reign. This is a reign of destruction that he's proposing. And of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city, then all Israel will bring ropes to that city, and we shall drag it into the valley, and not even a pebble is to be found there. In a nutshell, this is, this is the advice of Hushai. Get, get some fear, get some anxiety, get some apprehension cooked up, and now lay out a plan that involves, first of all, some more time than what Ahithophel proposed because now the sequence has flipped. Instead of kill David, A, and then unite all Israel, B. He's, he's going at the opposite direction. A, unite all Israel, and then B, kill David. And oh, by the way, everyone who has been loyal to him. Hushai's plan is going to take a little bit more time because now there's some work up front that Absalom is going to have to do in, across all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, assembling a mighty army to go out and crush and annihilate all of, all of David's loyal followers, not just a tactical strike on one man. What a distortion of the picture that Ahithophel had painted for Absalom. Like a bride returning to her groom. Now this bride is, is the vicious warrior who's going to go out and destroy David and his followers. And, and the pictures that he paints in their minds here of, of dew that is falling, of sand on the seashore, of city walls being pulled down with ropes and nothing, not even a pebble left. A picture of utter destruction. Really, the reason that Hushai's advice is so palatable to, to Absalom, as we're going to see their reaction to this advice, is because Hushai is catering to the very sin issues in Absalom's heart. His own pride, his own desire to elevate himself. Absalom gets to be the hero of this version of the plan. Plan B has Absalom leading the charge, Absalom crushing and annihilating and destroying his dad and anyone loyal to him. Not Ahithophel leading the charge of a tactical strike, but now Absalom as the king. And this is appealing to him as we see in verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. You might wonder why did they flip-flop? You know, why did they hear some sound advice from, from a trusted advisor? And, and we, we read right there in verse 4, the advice seemed right. Ahithophel's advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders with him. And all of a sudden, just a couple of paragraphs later, they flipped and now they're all agreeing this plan is better. Why did that happen? For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. There was more going on here than just the advice of two men. There was a sovereign God orchestrating events, bringing judgment for sin. And really, we've got Absalom who's, who's actually just trying to validate decisions he's already made, right? He's the one who decided, I'm going to usurp my father's throne. I know a better path forward for Israel. It involves me being in charge. I'm going to make things happen. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Now that I've decided all that, who can I get to advise me so that I can achieve my self-centered plans in the universe I'm creating? Are we ever at risk of looking for that kind of advice? And maybe the best advice 
from a trusted friend whose eyes are fixed on King Jesus, whose heart is surrendered to his word, would be to say, hang on a second, back up the train. You're making decisions about things in your future. You're only seeking advice 10 steps down the process of a path you have ordained in your own heart and mind. Let's go back to the beginning and say, God, what is your will? And I really think in David's inaction in this whole story with Absalom, as we're seeing him fleeing, running, we're going to see his response as this story unfolds. There's some hope in David's heart because the end of this story hasn't been written yet. This is his boy that we're talking about. And David remembers his grievous sins against his neighbor, his neighbor's wife, and he's seen the pain in his own family unfold. But the hope that's in David's heart remembers the prophet that God sent to his house in the time of his rebellion when Nathan came and confronted David with his sin, when David had an opportunity to repent, to turn in a new direction and say, God, I humble myself before you. I have sinned and to cry out for mercy. And so with that redemption hope in mind, David is not taking action against Absalom. In fact, we'll see that he commands Joab and all the commanders, deal gently with Absalom for my sake. There's some hope in this father's heart that God can still work in the life of an individual whose story has not yet been fully written. I hope we can pick that up as well, that we don't label, dismiss, categorize other living humans, whether they're in this room or elsewhere, but that we trust in God's grace, his mercy, that he's at work in ways that we can't see and things that we can't do. And if it's his will to bring destruction and harm upon someone, that's up to him. We don't need to make that happen. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And we entrust ourselves to him and allow him to work in his time. Otherwise, we're just as guilty as Joab, as Absalom in this story of making things happen on our own. So these two pieces of advice, both sounded good in their time, but Hushai's advice seems even better to both Absalom and all of Israel, all of the leadership, everyone that's with him, because God has been speaking through Hushai to bring this message that is actually not a good plan at all. If you're, if you're trying to accomplish Absalom's goal of continuing in this path of sin. So now the, the end of chapter 17 is really a story of people that God brings to David in his lowest moment to support him, to encourage him, that even in the wilderness there's some provision that God is bringing. So let's, let's go through these three examples of God providing what David needs in this wilderness time. So Hushai now, uh, having been a part of this whole dialogue between Absalom and his advisors, knowing what's going to come, he wants to send word to David. And so he says to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, loyal to David, thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. So, hey guys, priests, we need to get message back to David of what just happened here. Inform David. It's the first gift. It's the first set of people that God has has provided to bring the information that David needs to continue down the path of following God's call upon his life to be the king of Israel. Hey, advisors, go and get word to, to David of what's happening. So there's, there's information, first of all, that's a gift to David. Now, therefore, send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight. 
Here's the message to David. David, don't stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king, Absalom, and all the people from Dan to Beersheba, all, I just gave him advice that's basically, we're all going to come hunt you down. You need to know. Get out of there. Lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Okay, so the first two guys that are sent, these two priests, Zadok and Abiathar. So now, who, who are the priests going to send to bring this message to David? They start with a female servant who is then going to go pass the message to two more guys named Jonathan and Ahimaaz. You almost need a chart to picture all these names and all these characters that are involved here. So, so the priests now pass the message on to the female servant. Let's read the next passage here, verse 17. The next way that God is providing help for David in his time of need. Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David. For they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim. So, in other words, the plan was, okay, these are the two advisors. But if anybody sees them coming into the city and heading to David, they're going to know that they are loyal to David and bringing him news of what just happened here. So they use this female servant, unnamed female servant, to kind of sneak out, pass the message on to these guys who can then go. But that word gets back to Absalom. So now their lives are in danger. The whole plan is in jeopardy. There's some tension continuing on here. So God provides for the protection of these emissaries that are being sent with a message to protect King David. And really, this is echoes of Joshua chapter 2. If you remember there, uh, Joshua, as God was giving the land of promise to his people Israel, there was a woman that was used to protect two of the spies that Joshua had sent. Do you remember her name? Rahab. Do you remember she hid these two spies in her home? There was some deception involved. She lowered them down with a rope, freed them. That was in the city of Jericho right before Israel crossed over the Jordan River. So there's some echoes of time from Israel's past when God provided the right person at the right time, provided a faithful woman who would protect these two guys that God had sent, that his plan would be carried out, that his provision would be seen, that the land that he had promised would be granted. And we're, we're hearing echoes of that in this story. So they're, they're in jeopardy now. Word has gotten to Absalom that they've been seen. They're now at the house of a man in Bahurim, a man who had a well in his courtyard. And they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it. And nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They've gone uh, over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water. For thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose and all the people who were with him and they crossed the Jordan. There's some more echoes from Joshua chapter 3 now. 
By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, now remember, Ahithophel, if you're getting the names clouded in your mind, he was the first advisor, actually gave good strategy. Send me out as the leader of the tactical strike force of 12,000 men. We'll just take out David. We'll deliver everyone else to you. Everyone will be happy. End of story. But his advice was not followed. If you gave really good advice and then someone else is really bad advice is what is followed and you know it's not going to work and you've had a couple, you know, a couple hours or days to think about this, your future, your career prospects, when you know that the, the, the king who's on the run is going to be coming back, the guy who's sitting on the throne isn't going to live much longer, and you gave advice to this guy, you chose loyalty to this guy who's about to die, pretty hopeless situation Ahithophel is in. And so here in verse 23, when he saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Even in his last day, he was careful, strategic, planning, knowing I want to die in my hometown so that I'm buried at the family burial plot. I want to get my house in order. And whether this was like a, a saving face action or it was anticipating the executioner's sword, this is the end of Ahithophel's story. And he's, he's, his life has come to an end. And so now the, the continuing story now of Hushai's advice being followed. David, he came to Mahanaim and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Who's Amasa? Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. I've done a lot of careful study and exegesis of that whole paragraph. I think it only means that Joab and Amasa are first cousins once removed. That's all I got for you. Maybe there's something deeper. But it's in here. It's in God's word. So there it is. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. And really, seriously, honestly, all joking aside, I think the picture that's being painted here is we have cousin against cousin. We have father against son. We have king against nation. It's a very dark day in Israel's history. This is a civil war. The, the, the forces of Absalom are referred to as Israel. And, the other, the, and they are versus David and his men. It's a very sad and dark day in Israel's history. And so all Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. Verse 26. One more category, a third category of faithful friends that God provides for David during this time of wilderness. Those who informed, those who risked their lives to bring the message to warn him, and now provision for his practical needs. So when David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, 
Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim. So three guys brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, honey, curds, sheep, cheese for the herd. It's like the grocery list my wife texts me, you know, when I'm out and about. And this was for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. God was not unaware of David's practical needs. He needed some information. He needed warning. He needed provision. And so God sent some friends that were loyal and faithful. And I think as we're reading through all these names and these stories and the drama that's unfolding, it's important to consider who is Scripture holding up for us to emulate and whose actions are we being called to reject? And it would be a mistake to say, oh, we, you know, I, feel, I feel like I have the ministry of Hushai. My ministry, as I'm reading this today, is to go and lie to people, give them really bad advice so they're destroyed. And it would be a mistake to follow Absalom and to say, you know, when he sat at the city gate and won all the hearts of the people by promising to give them all their special interests. I like that. I'd like to be like Absalom on that. Some of his other stuff, maybe I reject that. That would be a mistake, a mistaken reading of Scripture. But there are some actions and behaviors that we are called to emulate and others that we're called to reject. I think the, the risk of looking at the story of Ahithophel and Hushai would be to say, don't ever listen to the advice of anyone. One of them is just giving you what you want to hear in your echo chamber. And the other one's giving you advice that's even worse. It's going to lead to your destruction. So just don't ever listen to anyone's advice. And I think the end of this chapter reminds us that God does send faithful friends. God places us in the context of believing community. Those who are fixed on God and his word. Those who are listening to him and submitted to him. Those who when we have practical needs will come and serve and meet those and give us information and warning and provision in those wilderness times of life. And also to expect that God will use us in those ways for someone else, maybe right here in this room, when there's a practical need to not just say, oh, I hope they're doing okay out there in the wilderness, but to be willing to go and to give and to serve in those ways. Anyone here thankful for faithful friends that God brings your way in those times of wilderness? I am. And so now the end, of, the end of the story of Absalom in chapter 18. Let's dig into this t- today as well. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, well, whatever seems best to you, I will do. Some of this may be a function of the time in David's life that these events are unfolding. You know, we saw him in the palace taking a nap late in the day 
in the springtime, the time of the year when kings normally go out to war. That was the day of his sin with Bathsheba. The David who was out in the wilderness with a slingshot at first as a shepherd and later as a warrior used by God, defeating the Philistines, that's a David from long ago. We're now talking an aging David. We're coming in on the last chapters of 2 Samuel. He's likely well-aged. He's got grown children now who are trying to take over the throne. And so he's saying, I'm going to go out with you guys in battle. And kindly they're saying, Graybeard, why don't you stay back here in the city? I got a little gray there myself. <laughs> don't take that personally, Mike. And so they, they, uh, they urge David to stay back in the city. He agrees to that. The end of verse 4, So the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. Echoes of Absalom's actions just a couple chapters earlier as he sat at the city gate and won the hearts of the men. And now really a picture of David doing this, but not in a subversive way, but to encourage, to support as the, the legitimate king of Israel, supporting them as they go out in battle. And the king ordered Joab, command of the king, you heed this, whether you're the commander of the army, army or, or of the other two divisions of the army, Abishai and Ittai, here's the king's command. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Not just in their ears, but it says all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. Again, we're seeing a father's heart despite the fact that the usurper is on the throne in, in Jerusalem and there is a military action required. This is my son, and I'm commanding you, deal gently with my son. Everyone hears that instruction. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. There's some uh, clues of something that's going to come in this story yet. But it's really a picture of nature is actually opposing and fighting against Absalom and his army. The forest is defeating more men of the 20,000. More of them died in the forest, whether the terrain, whether beasts. I don't, I don't really have a picture. It's almost as if the trees are fighting against Absalom and his forces. And hang on to that thought because that's about to be taken even to another level. Who's the God of nature? The one true God, maker of heaven and earth. Not a trick question. You know, it's not Mother Nature, Father Time, you know, like three deities. There's one God, the maker and creator of all things. Can he use nature for his purposes? Absolutely. He does right here in this story to thwart the, armies of Ab the army of Absalom and those who are opposed to the king that he has put on the throne. And so the continues on now. As, as the, the, the battle has gone in the favor of David and his army, verse 9, and Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. What a coincidence. 
Absalom was riding on his mule. That's the kind of animal a king rides on in the Old Testament. And the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. And his head caught fast in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth. While the mule that was under him went on. Hmm. Wonder how that happened. Do you remember uh, what was said of Absalom a little bit earlier in 2 Samuel? Uh, Go back to chapter 14, verses 25 through 26, where we find out that Absalom is the most handsome stud in all of Israel. He's a looker. And he's got this luscious, gorgeous hair that he, he, he cuts once a year. It's like a big ceremony. Oh, it's Absalom haircutting day. And when he does that, if you, if you were to weigh out the shekels, convert it, it's almost five pounds worth of hair that they cut off of this good-looking dude once a year. And you remember when Jesse entertained the prophet Samuel at his house way back at 1 Samuel, and God said to Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And now... Absalom's crown becomes his demise. His his head is stuck in in this tree and he's dangling there. He's hanging there as his mule continues on. The king taken off his mount. Nature continuing to conspire against him. Not just the impersonal force of nature but the God who controls nature, who sends advisors to thwart your self-centered evil plans at times, who uses all kinds of circumstances Because he gets his way, we don't get ours. And so there he's dangling. And then in verse 10, a certain man whose name we don't know saw it, the scene of Absalom dangling from the oak tree. And he told Joab, Joab the commander of David's army, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak you remember what David had instructed Joab and the other two commanders in the hearing of all Israel? Deal gently with my son Absalom for my sake. So now news comes to Joab from this certain man. Absalom's hanging from a tree right over there. Joab said, what? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, and here's a lecture to Joab from this certain man, about two paragraphs of it. Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Oh, oh, I I don't know what this certain man did out by the oak tree. That's what Joab would have done. This man is accusing him. This is the rebuke of this certain man. And really, he's, he's reflecting the same heart David had early in his story as he was the anointed king. And yet for years, Saul continued on the throne of Israel, hunting him with a spear. David had opportunities. One time in a cave with a knife. Another time in a camp 
as Saul was sleeping with everyone else and he's holding Saul's spear in his hand. He could have made things happen. He could have taken action. And yet David said, I don't want to create a world or live in a world where God's anointed king, where I take the authority myself to strike down God's anointed king. And this certain man is saying, I've got that same heart. If God's going to make something happen, he'll have to do it in his timing and his way. I'm not going to be the mover and shaker who knows better than the king, better than the person God has put in leadership, who knows better than God himself. And it's going to be in my timing and my way. I reject that way of living and that course of action. Joab, on the other hand, is perfectly fine with taking matters into his own hands. And here in verse 14, Joab says, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet. There's, some, there's a pun there in Hebrew that doesn't really work in English. But, but what, what it, it, maybe pierce would be a good word. You know, a trumpet makes that piercing sound. And that's the same word that's used of the javelins that Joab pierced into, uh, into Absalom as he hung in the tree. He didn't kill Absalom with the three sticks or the three javelins. He mortally wounded him. But he involved 10 other young men in the murder. And I think that's to spread the blood guilt around. You know, it's a, it's a big risk to be the commander of the army who kills the king's sons against the king's explicit commands. But if we can kind of dilute this, like, oh no, a bunch of us just killed them together. Who's the guilty party? Will the king hunt Joab down and make him pay for his crimes? Or has he spread it around enough that he'll deflect some of that guilt to these other young guys? So Joab blew the trumpet. The troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. So now we've won the battle. Absalom's dead. Let's not continue this civil war, the slaughter of our own, our own countrymen, our own family. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. And he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. A couple piles of stones, one where Absalom's dead body lies, another where he set up a monument to himself. And also the, the clue that there is no male offspring of Absalom. So there's no Hatfield and McCoy situation where now Absalom's son someday is going to be the usurper who tries to take the throne from David. That's the end of Absalom's lineage. And now word has to get back to David of what's happened. So then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said to Joab, let me run and carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you are not to carry the news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. 
uh, excuse me, Ahimaaz, you may need to go back and reread earlier in 2 Samuel, like chapter 1, when someone came with news that Saul and Jonathan were dead. Didn't work so well for them when that news got to David. Or go back and read chapter 4, when someone else brought news that Ishbosheth was dead. Didn't work out so well for them either. They're all dead now. And I like you. So no, Ahimaaz, you're not going to run back and bring news to the king. It's not going to be good news that he's going to receive. This is his son that we're talking about. But we've got to send somebody. So Joab looks around and he says, to the Cushite, foreigner. Could be Egypt, could be Ethiopia. And he says, you go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. This is the mindset of most marathon runners that I've met. I don't know why you're running, there's nothing chasing you, but you've determined that you want to run. You're crazy. And so he, there he's going, and, and so Joab says, okay, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he's alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer, and the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, See another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. I recognize his gait, his, his stature, the kind of sneakers he's wearing. And the king said, He is a good man and he comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well! And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. So through and through, in, in Ahimaaz's proposal to Joab, and now as he's actually declaring the message to David, he's giving glory to the God who grants victory, the God, our deliverer. And there's no confusion in his mind that, oh, Hushai's plan worked. You know, it's, it's not a distortion. It's a clear, truthful picture of what really happened. God has delivered you from the hand of your enemies. God is the one who grants victory. The Lord be praised. The king's the pressing question in his heart. Is it well with the young man, Absalom? And Ahimaaz evades the question and answers. When Joab sent the king's servant, uh, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. The king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? 
The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king got the message. He was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And the story there ends with the king's anguish. It actually, we'll pick it up again next week as, as Joab now comes to confront David about this reaction of grief. On the one hand, David is a, is a man of faith who trusts in God. He believes the, the words of both of these runners that have come, saying, God has granted your deliverance. He knows that he was the anointed king of Israel. He knows that it was God's plan for him to sit on the throne of Israel. He knows that really Absalom's actions were in the category of sin. And so from that perspective, he must rejoice in knowing that God has granted the victory and preserved his life. But there's an even greater emotion at work here. It's a father's love for his son. That redemption hope now brought to an end as the end of Absalom's story is written. And it's natural that we as parents would grieve and hurt when our children suffer and face harm because of their sin. Or for anyone else in this room or in this world. And if we enjoyed people suffering because of their sin, we would not have the Father heart of God. Jesus himself, when he looked on the crowds, the multitudes that were like sheep without a shepherd, he was moved with compassion for them. His heart is a heart of compassion for those who are suffering in their own sin. Not a heart of gloating, not a heart of hoping they get what's coming. And really, holding the, the grievances against us, the ways that we've been harmed and hurt, holding that up to the Lord. Saying, God, it's, it's, not, it's not in my power, it's not in my agenda to avenge myself, to seek retribution, retaliation, to make sure that they've got what's coming, to make sure the truth gets out there. But to entrust that to God, that allows us to keep that tender, gentle heart that God can continue to shape and form for his good purposes and his glory and in this anguished prayer, this cry, where he repeats his son's name over and over and he cries out, you can feel the pain in David. And really, he's, he's wishing that the natural order of things could have been what happened, that a king would grow old and die and his son would take his place on the throne. I wish that I could be dead and my son would be alive. That in God's time, the same plan Absalom had would have been possibly fulfilled had he been patient and waiting and yet he chose to seize power and to make things happen and to take authority and God had to punish that sinful behavior which was against God's plans and God's heart. The messages to us here in, this, in these chapters that we've read, there is a God who delivers. Trust in his powerful hand, trust in his timing, Receive the help that he brings our way. Don't be so stubborn 
that you say, I don't need the information, I don't need the warning, and I don't need the provision, I'm good. And look for those who are in the wilderness that you will be sent to bring that hope and that encouragement and that provision when there's a time of need. Be cautious where you go for advice. Look for advisors who begin by saying, it must be really hard what you're going through. Let's let's bring this to the Lord together. Let's not just surround ourselves with those echo chamber voices who reaffirm this decision you've picked. Let's not risk listening to advice from people who may have our, not have our best interests in mind. But let's begin by saying, God, what should we do in this situation? That's good advice that we should be giving and receiving to one another. And when, when there's suffering because of sin, let's have that same heart of David to grieve and lament and not rejoice and gloat over suffering because of sin that we see in someone else who may even be an enemy. But to entrust them to God, to have that hope, that redemption hope up until the very end, that God can get a hold of a heart, God can send a warning, God can bring people to repentance. That includes those of us right here in the room today. Most, most often, the person we are most hard on and, and unhopeful toward is ourselves because we know our full stories, we know our intentions, our thoughts. We start looking in the mirror and going, man, God could never forgive somebody like you for all that you've done. And today, to hopefully hear that redemption hope that's woven throughout this story, that God today is reaching out to you with his grace and mercy, that Christ shed blood is sufficient to cover over your sins, that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, neither height nor depth, angels or demons, nothing else in all creation. And that gift is given freely to you today if you'll just receive the price that he's already paid. Let's go to him in prayer today and receive the help that we need from the God who delivers. God, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for your power. We thank you for the sustenance that we need in the wilderness times, friends that you bring our way. And God, we come to you today with open hearts and say, God, give us the advice we need. There's real decisions that people in this room have to make this week. And we don't want to just get a lot of human opinions, but we want the wise, thoughtful advice of those who are sent by you to remind us to cry out to you. We thank you for the gifts that your Holy Spirit pours out on the church to edify and build up the body. Thank you that there are those within this body with the gift of discernment that you, by your Holy Spirit, gift them to bring a timely word for a specific situation so that we can know how to follow after you. Those with the gifts of prophecy who can point us to specific areas in your word that relate to the questions that we have and speak that word from you. And God, we pray that those gifts would be at work within our body, that as your spirit has given all sorts of gifts, that you would be glorified, that your church would be built up, that we would be people filled by your spirit, walking in the spirit, submitted and surrendered to you this week. Pray, Lord, that that when we're the ones to receive help, we'd be humble enough to receive it and to see that it's from you. And when we're called upon to go that extra mile, to sacrifice, to give, to be a blessing to someone in a wilderness time, that we'd be willing to give generously. We thank you, Lord, now for your work within this church. Make us a blessing in our community, we pray.
In Jesus' name, amen.